And yet, us readers are left wondering, has Abraham grown at all? Abraham constantly doubted God. He questioned God. He challenged him. He even ridicules God's plans. Every time he faces a foreign king, he's afraid for his life and lies about Sarah. He repeatedly treats his wife with disrespect. Is this truly the man that trusted God, the one that we are to look to as the model of righteousness by faith? Fear not. We have one final episode that we can focus on in the life of Abraham. Abraham is called to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Child sacrifice is bad. This is established throughout scripture. It's something God takes very seriously. It is a capital offense in Levitical laws. It's not something that he wants to happen. The importance of this story is that we get to see Abraham finally wake up and grow up. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good evening. How are you guys doing? So I'm a chaplain, so I'm used to usually um, visiting with people one-on-one, and so I'm great talking with one person. There's a few more than that here tonight. So I would pray and hope that you guys would bear with me as I share with you what I've studied and written and worked through this week. I'm Derek, as, I, as Pastor Phil so kindly said. I'm one of the chaplains. It's good to see you. Um, it's, um, I work with people in the hospital often who are going through really difficult moments in their life. Um, people who have um, been facing death, those who have lost loved ones, those who are in particular crises in their life. And so it's a passion of mine to be there for um, those who are struggling. Um, I'm excited about this series. I love the Old Testament. Um, I remember uh, growing up in my house, my dad had visited Egypt, and so he had all the papyri up on the walls of, the, of, of Pharaoh on his chariots. And so this gave me a love for the Old Testament and studying about the Pharaohs in Egypt and, and all of those amazing ancient stories. And so something about the older something is, that, that, that question, do I resonate with the past more than the future? Absolutely. The older something is, the way cooler. If I could take a year off, I would go to Scotland and there's the University of Scotland offers a degree in Assyriology that just looks amazing, ancient Assyria. Yeah, we'll see, maybe another life. But um, today I um, want to talk to you guys about the story of Abraham. Abraham is sort of one of the founders of much of Western and Middle Eastern religion. And so I think exploring and examining his story is such an important part of what it means to be a Christian, be a Jew, be a Muslim. And all of us, this is an area we can find common ground on and explore this man's story, his contribution. The 19th century, influential French author who had no idea who he was until I started preparing for this. His name was Gustave Flaubert. I had to write it down as Flo-Bear, so I'd say it right. He wrote this really interesting line 
Oh, also, I forgot to say, I took all these pictures that are going to be up here tonight. I thought it would set the vibe, the theme. So um, I spent a year in Egypt. I hope you guys enjoy the photography, and I hope it helps uh, set the vibe. So anyways, uh, Flaubert, Flaubert, I didn't take one of the pictures. You'll figure out which one it is, um, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, Flaubert wrote, you should never touch your idols. A little bit of gold always rubs off. Never meet your heroes. I think this is something that we can resonate. I think we are all sort of reaching an age and we're reevaluating our childhood heroes. We're looking at them as we enter adulthood and we're seeing that perhaps a bit of their golden luster is only paper thin. We idealize our parents, our older siblings, our younger siblings, our cousins, our teachers, perhaps an athlete, perhaps an actor, a historical figure, even a biblical character, only to realize later on in life that they are riddled with flaws and mistakes and sins. Some of you guys maybe um, were surprised to realize that the actor Will Smith was a human being um, when he angrily slapped Chris Rock on stage at the Oscars this year. This may be a previous generation, but um, I've heard of this person named Lance Armstrong. I think he did bicycles at one point. Um, He admitted to taking steroids, and his gold was quite literally stripped away from him in his medals. As a patriotic young American, um, it's in my family lore that we're direct descendants of both Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. That explains a lot of my internal conflict. But I grew up as a very patriotic American who idealized the founding fathers, only to grow up and realize that their shiny, shiny facade also fell down when I found out that their definition of freedom only included people that looked like me. You see, too often there is a vast contrast between, between, on one hand, the legendary figures, the heroes we idealize, and the flawed and broken, corrupt people behind the curtain. This contrast is exceedingly clear in the vast difference between the legend and the man, Abraham. Abraham is known in multiple faiths as the quintessential man of faith. He has a reputation for being stoic and unwavering. He is not only the founding father of our faith, but also of Judaism, of Islam, as I said before. His faith was so strong that at God's command, he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, this promised son, without question. The Bible lifts him up as a faithful and righteous man, someone who we should idealize, someone who we should follow after. And yet, as we examine his life here tonight, I think we might realize that Abraham was a man much more of fear than he was a man of faith. The story begins in truly ancient times. Traditional estimates place um, Abraham during the Bronze Age or 2000 plus BC. Ancient, ancient times. I love it. It's amazing. I was, I was looking at the genealogies, and it's, it's possible that he was so early that he could have met Noah himself. Noah and Shem were both alive during the life of Abraham. I imagine him sitting at their feet, learning about the flood, learning about life before the flood, learning about what it was like to see God face to face, to have that beautiful relationship. We know quite little about Abraham's early life. We know he grew up in a city named Ur. 
beautifully situated along the river Euphrates. Ur was one of the major Mesopotamian city-states at the time. We know that early on in his life, he married a woman named um, Sarah. And the Bible is very clear that they struggled to have any children. They had no children. And this became a point of deep insecurity throughout all of Abraham's life. The Bible states this very right away, very early in the story. We also learn that Abraham's early life is marked by tragedy. His older brother, Haran, who I was excited to discover, Haran simply means mountaineer in the Bible. And as an aspiring mountaineer, I was excited to see that we've got representation that early on in the Bible. But Haran sadly dies. I don't know if he was mountaineer or not. Um, uh, The Bible does say he died at home with his family. But it was tragic because he died before his father. He died young. And this, this had a profound effect on the family, so much so that it seems that as a result of this death, Abraham's father moved the family away from the gentle stream of the Euphrates River across the known world there on his way to the mythical land of Canaan. He stopped in modern-day Turkey, and there Abraham's father passed away as well. This brings us to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, the first time that God speaks to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, I believe we have it on the screen here. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name was Abram at this point, I'm just going to gloss over that, it, it, you, another sermon. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God gives Abraham one command. The command is simple and straightforward. It is go. Go. And after this one simple command, God then gives a whole long list of promises. First, he promises, number one, to show Abraham the promised land the land of Canaan that his generations and generations of of Israelites will be able to inherit. Promise number two, he promises to solve the problem of childlessness. He promised to give Abraham many descendants. Promise number three, he promises to bless Abraham and to bless the world through Abraham. Promise number four, he promises to defend Abraham's honor. Now remember, Abraham is a refugee. He's moving away from Ur, he's moving away from Turkey, and now he's coming into a land where it is not his own. He is surrounded by people who are not his people. And so as he journeys and travels throughout this place, there will be time when perhaps people dishonor him, perhaps people shun him. And God says, those who dishonor you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. And so these four promises, the promised land, the promised son, the blessings, and defending Abraham's honor. All in response to one simple command, go. At 75, Abraham accepts this calling, and he begins to travel south. That's quite an old age to begin to follow God's call in your life, and yet it is meaningful. It is part of his life. He begins this traveling south. I don't know how, far, how long it takes him to travel. We, see, we do know that he travels with quite a few possessions, with his nephew named Lot, with his wife and his family. And they travel down. After some time, they arrive in Canaan. The Bible describes a tree 
a giant tree. I assume this tree had some significance in the last generations, enough that the author put this down as a major significant landmark. But this tree was in a place called Shechem, and there Abraham stopped. He built an altar to the Lord, and he receives another message from God. Verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. Boom. God has fulfilled the first promise, the promise to show him the land. Already we have one promise fulfilled. God has been proven trustworthy. Abraham followed through, God proven trustworthy. So what does Abraham do the first thing after God has proven so trustworthy? He runs away. He gets scared. He runs away to Egypt. Just love that for him. Abraham is so good at following God's command. He's also just as good at completely forgetting God's faithfulness right away. A famine comes to land. He runs off to Egypt. What does he do in Egypt? He acts the supreme fool. He tells Pharaoh that his wife, Sarah, is most definitely single and totally down to mingle with eligible pharaohs. Pharaoh is apparently really into this, and so he takes Sarah into his house with the uh, implication that they will be married soon. It's really funny how quickly we forget God's working in our lives. So quickly, God had been proven faithful already. Abraham panicked. Literally eight verses before this story, God had promised, I will bless those who bless you. I will, to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And God upholds his end of the deal. For dishonoring Sarah and Abraham, Pharaoh is cursed with a set of plagues. This is the first time plagues come in Egypt. Not in Moses' story, but in the story of Abraham. God says, no, they have dishonored you. I will send some plagues. I will curse him who curses you. Abraham figures this out quite quickly. He liberates Sarah, and he dumps all sorts of wealth on Abraham in apology. And Abraham is effectively banished from Egypt at this point. So much for blessing the world through Abraham. But despite Abraham's critical failure, God's promise to greatly bless Abraham is fulfilled. The second promise, actually the third promise in that list, to give him wealth, to bless him and bless those around him. Two out of four, that's pretty good for, for God. Time passes. Abraham continues to wander throughout Canaan. He's left Egypt, he's back up in Canaan. God has given the command to wander throughout the land, explore the land that God will give you. Lot decides to leave Abraham and goes and starts assimilating with Sodom and Gomorrah, adapting to their ways, adopting their problems. Uh, we, we see this really interesting story in chapter 14 where Abraham leads a small army of 300 men and they go and attack and liberate Sodom from some oppressors. It's a really interesting story. It's, it's a time when Abraham did follow through and did do something right. But this brings us to chapter 15. One of my favorite chapters in all of Genesis. It's this beautiful and bizarre story. We don't have time to go completely through it today, but I wanted to focus on one section of it. Just to recap, so far, God has promised a lot of things. God has fulfilled to show the promised land. He's followed through with that promise. Two, he's blessed Abraham. And three, he's defended Abraham's honor. Abraham is very quick to follow. He's also quick to forget. There is one promise yet unfulfilled. Abraham and Sarah are still childless. And this clearly weighs heavily upon Abraham. And so when God appears to him again in chapter 15, the first thing on his mind is, hey God, you kind of forgot about this other blessing that you promised. God appears to him in chapter 15. 
He reiterates his, reiterates his promises to protect and bless Abraham. He says, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham is afraid God forgot. He says, oh, Lord God, what you give me, what would you give me? For I continue to be childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, he's saying, what's the point of you showering me with all this good wealth, all this blessings, when I have no children to pass it on to? No one to remember my name after I'm God. And this brings us to Genesis 15 and verse 5. God is not phased by Abraham's doubt. Instead, he responds, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He asks Abraham to step outside. I took this on top of Mount Sinai. He says, Step outside and look at the stars. Take a second to look at the stars and then try counting them. I remember this night very vividly. I remember the stars were so bright it almost hurt my eyes. I tried finding constellations. There were just too many stars. The constellations were just blown out because of all the other stars behind him. It was too many for Abraham to even begin to count. So shall your offspring be, says God. Abraham's fear is starkly contrasted with the sky above him with the faithfulness of God. And in this moment, we get one of the most beautiful lines in all of Scripture. For some reason, the writer, who has been pretty straightforward up to this point, just, just, just talking about what happens, writing down what happens, decides, I'm going to make a comment. I'm going to do some commentary on this right here. And this commentary has later become to be the foundation of all Christ, modern Christian theology. He says of Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. He believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Let's take a second and immerse ourselves in this idea. Abraham is filled with decades and decades of doubt, angst, uncertainty about his infertility. He stands beneath the starry sky, side by side with God, side by side with his friend, Having expressed his frustration to God, Abraham finally decides to give up and trust his God, his friend. And this is the beautiful part. Let's dive into some Hebrew here, okay? So there is a word that I think I can pronounce. I'm not sure. Okay, let's, let's try to do this together. It is chev. Okay, you got it. Chev. Cheshev. Excellent. Good job, everyone. It simply means counted. And Abraham believed in God, and God chesheved it to him as righteousness. Chesheved it to him as righteousness. That's definitely not how you're probably supposed to pronounce it. I'm going to go with it and love it tonight, okay? However, this word chesheved, I pulled it up this week, and this is the moment I'm like, oh, this is what my sermon's about. Got to throw everything else out. It's, I'm so glad. Cheshev means a lot more than just counted. Cheshev has a much, much broader meaning. It's used all throughout the Bible. And the beautiful thing about Hebrew is one word can, like, depending on the context, just have tons of different applications and meaning. But behind that is a general sense of what this word is. I would argue another way we could translate this would be Abraham believed in God, and God thought of Abraham 
as righteous. Do you notice the difference there? It's very slight. It's very subtle. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout Genesis, this word chashev is used to describe one person's perception of another, whether that be positive or negative. You know the story of Laban. Laban has two daughters. At one point, he becomes so angry with them. The Bible describes that he chashev, he views them as foreigners. Judah, in a very awkward story, is traveling and sees someone who is most definitely his relative. Um, and chashevs her because her face is covered. He chashevs that she's a prostitute. Eli, the high priest, during the story of Samuel, he sees Hannah at the temple crying and crying and crying. He chashev, he perceives, he sees her as a drunken woman. During the kingdom of Solomon, they were so rich that silver was chashev. It was seen, it was chashevd as nothing. We all do this in our relationships. We make judgments. He makes me feel safe and at home. She is super judgy and judgmental towards me. They are so difficult to be around. She is so stunningly beautiful inside and out. He is a real piece of work. She has problems, but I love her still. We also make these judgments about ourselves. I am unworthy of affection. I am flawed, unrepairable, unforgivable. Or maybe I am better than him. I am better than her. I am too good for these people. I deserve more in a relationship or in my career. We all make these judgments about ourselves and others. At the core of every social interaction, we have these perceptions. Having a good perception of those closest to us can make or break that relationship. So back to this, this situation here. And God chashevd that Abraham was righteous. God's perception of Abraham. He viewed Abraham as righteous. In the past, I always viewed this story as transactional. You know, I believe in God. Therefore, God will thou impart to me righteousness so that in the final judgment, I won't have any sins against me and that way I can get to heaven. I'm right with God, right? Because I believed in God gave me righteousness. That's true. That's great New Testament theology, but I think there's more to this than just that. I think that God believed. He truly viewed Abraham as righteous. That's one of the biggest compliments the Old Testament has to offer about someone righteous. It means following the law. It means more than just following the law. It means doing a just person, doing right by the weakest in society. Abraham, therefore, was right with God in the salvific sense, but also in the relationship sense. When we believe in God, God believes in us. Okay, how many of you guys did cold ordering? Okay, now, how many of you guys worked at summer camp? Okay, I, I have a, a, a supposition that, that you do one or the other. I did both because I am a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and, and righteous unto God. Now, okay, so one summer, I actually worked a couple summers at a summer camp. And at summer camp, it's a tough environment. You're working with people. You're with people all the time. And there was this girl there, okay, at summer camp. This is a number of years ago. She's married now. Anyways. Um, <laughs> But this girl, I, I was like, I was young and dumb, and I was like, man, this girl's really stuck up. She's all about herself. She's just not that, ugh, I don't know. I don't know. And then blind camp happened. 
Now, blind camp was a special time at our summer camp where instead of having young campers, we had dozens and dozens of blind people from the, um, I almost said Inland Empire, man, Vancouver, Greater Vancouver, British Columbia, okay? And it was one of the most enjoyable, fun, exciting, interesting weeks because we had all these people who, who came together with varying levels of blindness, loved each other's company, had the best jokes, best sarcasm, Blind people, have just it's amazing what they can say. They're like, it's great to see you. They're like, yeah, no, it's not. Um, they can't see. Uh, it's, it's amazing. So anyways, I'm spending this week with them, and I noticed how this girl was treating these blind campers. I was like, oh, dang, here it comes. And I like fell head over heels in love with her, completely head over heels in love with her. It went from being this girl who's stuck up all about herself to being like, no, she actually cares about people. Oh, man. And so... The point of this is that my perception of her drastically changed. And once I'm into her, I'm always into her. And so it was like, it took me like years and years. Yeah. Um, she's happily married. I'm happy for her. <laughs> the point of this story is to make fun of myself and also to you all understand how your perception of someone can change. Abraham believed God, and God, Cheshev, he believed that Abraham could be, was righteous. Where was I? All right. <clears throat> this powerful restoration, though, did not immediately equal perfection in Abraham's character. Abraham was still very prone to great lapses in judgment. In chapter 16, the very next chapter, we have this story where Sarah and Abraham come together and they're like, we're not having kids. We're so worried about this. God doesn't seem to be fulfilling his promises. We've been here for 10 years in Canaan and still we've got nothing. Let's try another woman. And so Hagar enters the picture and, and Abraham marries Hagar and then they have a child, Ishmael. God is silent during this time to Abraham. There's 13 years where God does not appear. God does not speak. God does not say yay or nay to the situation until finally in Genesis 17. After a decade of silence, God again appears to reiterate his promise of an heir. Again, Abraham doubts. But God says, Sarah will have a child. Abraham then responds by laughing. He ridicules God's idea. He tells God, please just be reasonable. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, why can't you just settle for my solution to the problem? God responds simply but powerfully, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his, for his offspring after him. God departs. And I imagine that Abraham is left in stunned silence. One year later, Isaac is born. But not before Abraham goes to yet another king and tells this other king that Sarah is most definitely also single and definitely ready to mingle. And it's a whole awkward situation. And God again comes in and curses that king. And that king again is like, come on, man. Anyways, after this awkward situation repeats itself, Isaac is born. 
God's promises have all now been fulfilled. God has promised to show the land. God did. God has promised to give his son. God did. God has promised to, what was number three? Oh, great. Uh, uh, bless him. Yeah, lots of money. He got really rich. Um, and number four, God promised to defend his honor. And God did that multiple occasions over and over again. Abraham is now able to grow old with the assurance that his name will be carried on through Isaac. And yet, us readers are left wondering, has Abraham grown at all? Abraham constantly doubted God. He questioned God. He challenged him. He even ridicules God's plans. Every time he faces a foreign king, he's afraid for his life and lies about Sarah. He repeatedly treats his wife with disrespect. Is this truly the man that trusted God, the one that we are to look to as the model of righteousness by faith? Fear not. We have one final episode that we can focus on in the life of Abraham. Abraham is called to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Before we dive into this story, I want to focus a few things here. First of all, two points. One, child sacrifice is bad. This is established throughout Scripture. It's something God takes very seriously. It is a capital offense in Levitical laws. It's not something that he wants to happen. Two, Abraham is a prophet. And so sometimes in the Bible, there's this reputation where prophets are asked to do strange, weird, bizarre things that the rest of God's people are not called to do. For example, Isaiah is called to preach naked in public. Uh, Hosea is called to marry a sex worker and then not mourn when she dies. Ezekiel is called to eat a scroll and then lie on his side for a year. What's important in this story is not the bizarreness of the claim. The importance of this story is that we get to see Abraham finally wake up and grow up. Abraham is willing to give up this security, to return to that state of not knowing if I'm going to have someone to carry on my name. And he does so without questioning God's faithfulness, not questioning God's ability to fulfill his promises. And he does not seek some human substitute instead. Genesis 22, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. We're back full circle again. Again, God sends him on a journey without having a definite destination in mind. Again, he is called to return to his state of insecurity before he had his son, Isaac. He is faced with some of his greatest insecurities again. But what is different this time? What is different this time? I would suppose that what is different this time is that God believes that Abraham is righteous. He believes that he can do this. I imagine Abraham thinking on this journey, if God believes I can overcome this core fear of mine, then I can. He realized that his relationship with God, this deep connection with God, was more important than his legacy, more important than his name being passed on. It was that trust in God that will forever define Abraham in history. You guys know the rest of the story, perhaps. Abraham climbs that mountain. He prepares his son as a sacrifice. At the last minute, an angel stops him. Instead, they offer a ram and they return home in joy. Throughout the rest of the Bible, Abraham is defined not by his fear, not by his many failures, but by his singular moments of faith. Abraham repeatedly failed. God was repeatedly faithful. And yet the record shows, the record in Hebrews shows not the broken view of Abraham, but God's view of Abraham. God believed that Abraham 
was righteous. We see in Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he, was, uh, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going. In verse 9, by faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. Hebrews eleven seventeen. by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. What mattered in the end was not Abraham's many mistakes. It wasn't even how Abraham perceived himself. What mattered both in the record of heaven and the record of Hebrews was how God perceived Abraham. God believed Abraham was righteous. It was that perception that truly mattered. And it was that perception that gave Abraham the strength to be faithful in the end. What matters in your life is not how others see you, not how you see yourself, but how God sees you. And God, God sees you as righteous. My mom sent me a quote this week when I was frantically looking for illustrations. I love her so much. She gave me this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we could be. Since I was a kid, I wanted to be a mountaineer. I remember reading about these stories in my my books about young people who had climbed these mountains, conquered the cold, conquered the rock climbing, conquered the, the, the scary, like, spirit of the mountain in the sense I wanted to be a mountaineer. I grew up in Glacier National Park where I was surrounded by mountains and mountains. And I remember imagining what it would be like to stand on top of that mountain, stand on top of that mountain. That would be amazing. And yet as I got older, I made excuses. I've never been athletic. You know, I I tried playing basketball in high school and it was really strange. I was the tallest person on the team by about two feet. And yet I had the lowest number of scores because I am so awkward on my feet. It's, It's hilarious. I don't know what to do with the basketball. I remember, you know, going to college and being like, oh, I don't have the friends who do mountaineering. I don't, it's it's not my thing. I'm not really athletic. I don't run marathons. I don't do crazy things like this. But then I met someone who believed in me. Jesse's here tonight. Uh, I met Jesse because, I don't know, how did we meet? PT, friends? The funny thing about Jesse was, Jesse, when he saw me, he didn't see someone with shortcomings. He didn't see someone who was lazy. He didn't see someone who was bad at basketball. He didn't see my inexperience. And he said he saw someone who he thought could climb some mountains. And so he's like, let's go climb Baldy. And I made it up Baldy. And he's like, well, let's go climb San Gregorio in December. And we didn't make it up, but that was, uh, there's reasons. Um, (laughs) And then he's like, I got this crazy idea. Let's try Mount Shasta. And so I got my crampons, I got my ice axe, and I got my buddy who believed in me. And we conquered Mount Shasta in, man, what was it? Negative 60 degree mile an hour winds, 60 60 mile an hour winds, negative 15 degree wind chill. It was an incredible experience. And you know how I got up there? Because I had someone who believed I could do it. Jesse believed in me, and so I believed in me. 
Our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we could be. God believes you are righteous. When we believe in God, God believes in us. Plain and simple, God believes you are righteous. And when God believes in something, it comes true. When God believes in something, it comes true. These are the two points I want to leave with you guys tonight. When you believe in God, God believes in you. And when God believes in you, you truly can be righteous. Two things. One, I want you to believe in God. I want you to believe that God will fulfill his promises. What is his promises to you? His promises to everyone to bless you and to bless the world through you. And two, you can be righteous because God believes in you. You can climb those mountains. You can do what God has called you to do. And so tonight, guys, I want to call you all to one, believe that God can fulfill his promises. And two, to believe as God believes that you are righteous, that you can be righteous. Thank you guys for coming on this journey with me tonight. God bless. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.